Not only was yesterday Canada's 152nd birthday, and by the way, don't we look right? We look really good for 152. Uh, Not only was it Canada's birthday yesterday, but also another pretty big birthday, pretty big milestone. The Sony Walkman debuted yesterday, uh, 1979. was on that date in 1979, 40 years ago. So the Walkman is 40 years old. July 1st, 1979 was the day that Sony released the Walkman TPSL2, which they say is the first kind of real portable music player that uh, obviously revolutionized the way that we all listen to music. Because up until the Walkman, I mean, nobody had portable music. Nobody uh, had a way to listen to music sort of privately with uh, their own headphones. Uh, If you can kind of recall, if you're around back in the late 70s, a lot of people got uh, their radio, their cassette deck, their boombox, and put it up on their shoulder, walking around with it, uh, blaring. But the uh, Walkman changed the way that we all uh, listen to and consume music. And here to talk about that and a few other music-related items is our buddy and music expert, Eric Helper. He's on the line and joins us on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Eric, good afternoon, sir. Hey, sorry about that. I couldn't hear you. I was too busy with my fuzzy headphones trying to flip over over my <laughs> A-side to B-side cassette mixtape I made just for you, man. <laughs> I love it. You, you know what? You hit on a couple of things that I remember the Walkman for, and uh, the, the first one, the original one, was uh, the headphones that had those uh, orange uh, sponge kind of ear caps or ear protectors. Yeah, so that people can see you when you're walking down in the middle of the street in the middle of the night, completely oblivious to all sounds and people around you. I mean, people tend to forget just, you know, if you weren't around during the Walkman phase and you might have not been like a teenager, young adult, just how omnipresent it was. It was, you know, kind of not so affordable to some people. You know, when it first started, it had a price tag of about $150. Um, But compared to a boombox, it was fairly cheap. Um, And the fact that you could carry your music with you in a smaller format, which was a cassette tape, and not have anybody else around you listen, uh, probably created that guilty pleasure while we're at it. Yeah. You, you know, the other thing I remember the original Walkman for was uh, matching those, uh, well, I'll call them earbuds, was what we call them these days, but uh, matching the headphones, the covers on the headphones, was the orange talk button. You remember that? <laughs> I do, I do. And it's so funny because, like, when you go through uh, how the industry reacted to all of that, whether it was a talk button or a record button, that this was going to be the device that killed the music industry entirely because now people were shutting up their stereos in order to tape the radio stations, waiting for the DJ to stop talking so they can tape their own favorite song right. um, without paying for it and making their own, you know, making their own mixtape and, and uh, you know, having more than 23 minutes of music on each side like we were all used to for vinyl record. Now, you know, they had 90 minutes worth of music, which was astounding back then. No kidding. And that talk button, by the way, just cracks me up because uh, you would push it when somebody actually wanted to talk to you while you were using your Sony Walkman. And they could, uh, if I remember this right, Eric, talk into the microphone and their voice would then go into your headphones. Uh, uh, 
Lord yeah. knows you wouldn't want to turn your music off and take the headphones off for a second. Right, right, exactly. And because the Walkman came with two headphone jacks for you to walk with somebody else, listen to the same music. Oh, right. It was, re- it was a real interesting way to be able to talk to one another as opposed to, again, just the time-consuming method it would take to actually take off your headphones and talk to somebody. Yeah, just finally, do you think that this, uh, I mean, obviously it changed the way we consume music, but did it change it for the better, Eric, do you think? Because uh, there is something to putting headphones on and getting a a, a little more into a song, a little more captivated. I don't know if it it kind of helped or hurt anything, really. But I think that when you talk about the isolation that human beings feel, um, being able to watch whatever we want to watch, say, on television or listen to radio stations like this away from the car uh, um, and in the kind of privacy of your own home, I really do believe that it started with the Walkman because it allowed you not only, again, to take the music with you for the very first time in a pretty easy way, um, but the headphones actually shut you out from the rest of the world and told everybody else not to bother you or talk to you. And I think that's where it started with the Walkman, then it, of course it moved to the iPod and then having all this music and music streaming services then you got to the books that are available on your home device, on your computer, and then things like Netflix. It actually kind of kickstarted the whole let's just keep to ourselves and not bother people um, and and a little bit of loneliness, I think, that when, mm. when it caused it. All right. Uh, well, happy birthday to the Walkman, 40 uh, yesterday. As we're on the line here with music expert Eric Alper. Uh, Eric, we also obviously want to talk to you since we got you on this afternoon. Uh, this whole uh, story, Taylor Swift versus Scooter Braun and Scott Borchetta. I, I love the headline Rolling Stone has. Uh, what the hell happened? Let the games begin. Uh, <laughs> and we're going to get you to kind of uh, untangle this uh, mess for us. But uh, basically, Scott Borchetta, he is the guy who, quote-unquote, discovered Taylor Swift. And he owned, uh, was it the, the recordings? Taylor still owns, uh, yeah, sure. like, what she wrote. But he owned the recordings. Right. So he was the the manager and the record label for Taylor Swift from the time that she was 12 until very recently. So he basically put together the funding and the master recordings for her first like seven albums or so. So he's got the right to own those master recordings, the first recordings, because he was the one that actually paid for the studio time. And those are the rules. It's like whoever pays for the the actual, you know, part mm-hmm. of, of that recording, then you own it. Um, what, what's interesting about it is that as I talk to more and more artists, over the course of the last 48 hours is how much music is out there that's not owned by the person that actually recorded it. Very few times does the artist not only get the opportunity to buy back their master recordings and thus is able to do whatever they want to do with it, sell it for the highest bidder or just sit on them and collect the money for royalties or anything like that, but they've never They've never had that much money to be able to afford to pay for this because it's not so much of, well, you sold 100,000 copies now, so just give us $100,000. These these record labels are going to want like a million dollars for them because they know that it's going to be worth something not only this year, but next year and the year after, the year after. Sure. What's amazing about this is just how public and how quick everything happened. Okay, uh, let me just stop you quickly because I want to fill in uh, people listening that might not have been following the minutia of all of this. So uh, Borchetta, who again uh, owned the recordings and discovered Taylor Swift, decided he wanted to divest and sell. Word is he gave Taylor 
Taylor the opportunity to buy these recordings back, but instead they got sold to Scooter Braun for, was it $300 million, I think, Eric? Yeah, $300 million. Yeah. yeah, big, big money. And Scooter Braun, by the way, happens to be the manager of Justin Bieber and Kanye West, who's had a very public feud, as we know, with uh, Taylor Swift. And then she went online, uh, and that's what made all of this uh, public, how upset she was that uh, Scooter Braun now uh, owned her music. Yeah, you know, and Taylor has been very public with all of her battles. Like, whenever she feels wronged or hard done by, she actually makes it public and gathers up that public support for for decades, um, I, you know, really since she started. Um, but what's really interesting about this one is that you just don't know where, uh, like, who to believe now because, you know, she came out said that she wasn't allowed to um, to actually, you know, bid or have a say in where the recordings of her recordings were going for. And then the press release came out. And then all of these artists, whether you were Team Taylor or now Team Scooter or Team Justin, it just seemed like it's not just a battle for the recordings, but it, it's now getting to the point where it's like this is a clear example of the male dominance over the female artists in the music industry to just how artists are being treated um, once they are kind of, you know, flicked aside, which, you know, a lot of Taylor's fans feel like she is. So it's really interesting to watch this play out. Mm. Why is it an artist uh, such as Taylor Swift or anyone else would sign away uh, the ownership or, or the rights to the, the music that uh, you have uh, created, the, those recordings? Is that just uh, so you can finally get signed to a record deal? Yeah, sometimes it's the only way to do it is that if you're looking to go into partnership with another record label, whether it's a big machine that started with you or another record label like a Universal, Sony, or Warner, um, it's one thing to be able to say, hey, I've got enough money. I can put myself in my own studio, but then maybe no record label wants to sign you because the sales aren't that big enough. What they want is the ownership of that music to be able to exploit it in all avenues, not just the recording part of it, but they get money every time it's on a TV commercial or in a film or um, played in the Muzak in the restaurant or bar where you go to. So it's a long-lasting effect, and it's a very valuable piece of negotiation when you get to own somebody else's masters. All right. Also uh, adding uh, a little intrigue to this is the fact that uh, Big Machine, her record labels, they claim that they gave her the opportunity to uh, buy back her uh, masters by uh, one album at a time, basically uh, by uh, giving them a new Taylor Swift album. They would give her ownership of the recordings of an older Taylor Swift album. Yeah, because, you know, one, one of the aspects of it is could have been that while Big Machine and Scott was looking for a buyer for the record label and management company, if he starts to give Taylor all of her master recordings back, then maybe this company isn't worth $300 million anymore. Maybe it's only worth $150 million. Maybe there was the opportunity for them to go public. And obviously, the more recordings they have, the more valuable it becomes. Um, but it's certainly, you know, this is a situation where I don't know if anybody really knows the truth anymore, because I think that both parties could actually be right in that one scenario. For all we know, Scott actually gave Taylor's team, which was made up of her lawyers and potentially her parents, the ability to get on the phone call and start negotiating before he sold it to Scooter. But Taylor is claiming that she never had the opportunity. That doesn't mean that she wasn't aware of all of this going on behind her back or in the legal rooms. It could have been like that maybe somebody just goofed up and didn't let Taylor Swift know. But overall, 
you know, it's a, it's, it's certainly a juicy gossip item for, you know, I, I think somebody who just commands attention in Taylor Swift whenever she decides to do something. And in this case, yeah. sticking up for the artist. Well, the other thing too, is the more things change, the more they stay the same. I mean, this is reminiscent for me uh, of the Eagles when they found out they didn't own any of their music and sued David Geffen and had a very uh, famous falling out uh, in the seventies. Uh, so, you know, this is kind of history in a way repeating itself. And uh, is the lesson for music, artists or really for anybody just be careful what you sign know what you're signing and more importantly what you're signing away yeah i don't even think that you've got a choice though when you're 15 or 17 or 21 and somebody hands you that golden ticket of that record label in front of you i think most artists in fact over 99 percent of them are happily willing to sign over their rights to it in order to just get that one opportunity for that brass ring and fame and fortune forevermore so i don't doubt that a lot of artists are going to continue to put themselves in this position um it's one of those things where look if paul mccartney didn't even own the rights to the beatles songs and was swooped up in front of him by michael jackson paying more money um, then anybody's going to be caught up in this interesting stuff eric appreciate the time as always thank you so much my friend no problem thanks for having me all right there goes music expert eric helper with us this afternoon